We've uh, reached Ezra chapter 8. Um, last uh, time, Richard gave us an excellent overview of chapter 7, which describes the uh, journey that a second group of exiles made to Jerusalem in 458 BC, 80 years after the first one. So we've now encountered two journeys home. So two journeys for the price of one. You can't argue with that but separated by 80 years. The first journey back was led by Zerubbabel, and uh, we've, we've looked at um, those first few chapters in Ezra, how they rebuilt the altar, and then the temple. And this journey is led by Ezra himself, who's, who many commentators think wrote this book. Some of it is his own diary. Um, and uh, I, I suppose the way to look at it is what, what Richard looked at us with last week, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7 is almost like a headline this is who Ezra is this is what he did and you'll notice that in chapter 7 and verse 8 it just says there Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king when you get to chapter 8 you get all the details of how they got to Jerusalem and the journey that they made so you've got the headline we were looking at that last week and we were introduced to Ezra as we get into chapter 8 and 9 and 10 we're going to see the detail of what happened, okay? So we've enjoyed the headline, and now, now we can get into the nitty-gritty of what actually happens. Uh, first of all, I just want to make some comparisons. Um, uh, oh, for, yeah, I should tell you about the title first as well. I, I've really been grappling what to call this. I've, I've entitled these thoughts, Leaders Who Get Stuff Done. Uh, Ezra is a young man here, mid-twenties, about the same age as Rich. And um, I think what he does here in chapter 8 is amazing, coordinating the second journey. And uh, so I could call this any number of titles, but I'm, I'm thinking about leadership and the leaders like Ezra, who under God's grace uh, get stuff done. And, and hopefully we can all learn something about that, not, not just leaders, but we can all learn something about good attitudes in relation to that. But first of all, some comparisons. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons I'm pleased that Abby read to us all of these names in Ezra chapter 8 is because they, this, this book is full of lists, isn't it, Ezra? Um, it's important for us to compare this list with the list in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2 there's a longer list of all the people who travelled back with Zerubbabel on the first journey and the reason these lists are here is, is so that we can, I suppose, get a sense of what happened on each of these occasions. Um, here we go. First journey. We know from the list in chapter 2 that almost 50,000 people travelled back in that first journey. That, that is quite a lot of people, but it's, it's nothing compared to how big the nation was before they went into exile. A few million people, 50,000 people travel back to Jerusalem. 900 miles takes about four months, and that was a big undertaking for 50,000 people to make that journey. When you get to chapter 8, the second journey with Ezra now, what Abby read to us adds up to about just less than 2,000 men. I think there's women and children to add on to that. But that's quite a big difference, isn't it? The first journey, 50,000. 
second journey with Ezra, less than 2,000 men. How many would that make with women and children? I don't know. Less than 5,000 probably. So it's less than a tenth of the people who went back the first time. So that's an interesting comparison for us to make. So my, my question is, why? And I'm going to throw that open as a, as a non-rhetorical question to you. Why do you think there was less people who went back the second time than the first time? Shout your answers out or send them on a postcard and we can wait until the post is delivered. And Why? It's good to ask questions, isn't it? To read these stories. Not many left. I think that is possibly part of the answer. But when you think that the nation had a few million people in it, I'm not, I'm not sure that the first 50,000 were like almost everyone. I think that 50,000 was a select few. It tells us in chapter 2 that God stirred the hearts of certain people to go back. So many people must have stayed behind. Um, so I, I think there would be less, obviously. But there's at least 50,000 less. But don't forget as well, there's 80 years gone in between. So the people who stayed behind will have had children and maybe the, you know, the, the 50,000 that have gone would have been replenished just by them all having kids and then them having kids and then them. 80 years is a few generations, isn't it? So what, what other... Go on. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit with the first journey, didn't we? It's, it's possible that they just got comfortable. I suppose many of these families now have been living there for, well, through generations, not the same people, 160 years, eight years they exile, and then eight years following that. So if your family have lived in the same place for 160 years, it's quite a big deal when someone says, let's go back, um, I think I might just stay here. I've got a nice garden, this is where I live, this is where my business is. So I think there's some truth in that as well. Any other thoughts? Let's keep you all away, you see. It's good. Any? Yeah, I don't know. Possibly some of them have married the people in Babylon, and kind of that was a big issue for the Jewish nation that they became kind of mixed and diluted, and that that's possibly part of uh, part of the reason. Well, let's well keep that question in mind. The why question. I want to give you. Um, I want to give you three possible reasons. I, I am speculating here, but see whether you think that these reasons are reasonable ones. Um, it's not as exciting now as it was the first time. Can you relate to that? There's something very exciting about being a pioneer, isn't there? I'll, I'll be in the queue. Please send me. Sorry, does that say the right thing? Yeah, it's not as exciting now as it was then. So, the first people went back. It was exciting for them. It was exhilarating. We've been in exile for 80 years. And then suddenly, God opens up the way under Cyrus for us to go back home to Jerusalem. These were the people who blazed the trail. Being the first on the scene, a blank sheet of paper. The excitement of being a pioneer. It's a lot harder to join in later, isn't it? I don't, I don't really want to go back now the second time. It's not as exciting being, well, not being a pioneer. 
they were there first I think I'm just going to stay here that's possibly one reason another issue is that if the pioneers work has stalled a little and gone a bit pear shaped and there's been delays and opposition and trouble and difficulty one second reason is that Jerusalem is depressed why would I want to go to Jerusalem they've had a nightmare maybe being part of that first little band would have been exciting but they haven't done anything really Okay, they've built a temple after 20 years of delay. They're having problems with the people who live around Jerusalem. There's all sorts of opposition and trouble. I think I'd rather just stay here and have an easy life. So there's two reasons. It's not as exciting now as it was then. And plus the fact, what's going on there is a bit miserable and a bit difficult and a bit hard. So the situation here is of a young leader mid-twenties stirring the people's hearts again to give themselves to what is a very difficult task it's not as exciting as it was it's not as glamorous as it was and more than that what's going on over there in Jerusalem 900 miles away from the reports they've been receiving is not I mean it's hard to give yourself to a work that's hard, isn't it? There's a third reason as well, I think. This time the work is different. Imagine this, the first time we're going to go back to Jerusalem because we're going to rebuild. We're going to build the altar, we're going to build the temple. The king's given us all sorts of gold and wood and all resources to do that. I'll sign up for that, that sounds fantastic. It'd be brilliant to go back there and rebuild what's been flattened somehow you can see the excitement that the fruit of their labours was very visible but this this return is not about rebuilding anything there's no tangible results to see there'll be no temple there'll be no altar to rebuild that's already been done this time it is more about rebuilding spiritually It is more about reforming the people's hearts. This return is about impacting this community in Jerusalem with spiritual change. I don't know about you, but I think it sounds to me to be quite easier to build a building than reform people's hearts. Buildings don't talk back to you for one thing. And when the building's finished, it stands there as a monument to what you've done. But if you've got to deal with people and transformation spiritually, that sounds to me like, I don't know, sleeves being rolled up. It's not as tangible. There is hidden inner heart work going on. People's lives are being impacted it's going to involve things like talking to people it's hard isn't it it's going to involve sharing life not just picking up a trowel and laying some bricks it's going to mean overcoming all kinds of anxieties and not settling for living lives that are distant from one another how much harder is it to invest in people 
than to just build a building. It can be painful. It's a great book. I, I should have had a copy here. There's a great book um, that an Australian guy wrote a few years ago. And it's called The Trellis and the Vine. And he's, he was thinking about church work. And he was probably sat on his back porch. And he's got porch? Porch. He didn't have a porch. He was sitting on his back porch. And he saw a little trellis there on his back porch there. And he's got grapes growing on it. And it suddenly occurred to him that if you're going to grow a vine, you need to build a trellis for the vine to grow on. But the, the trellis is not the vine, is it? The vine grows on the trellis. I think what he was really saying and what he says in the book is that in church we find it so much easier to build trellises, build structures, have programs, run meetings, all of that kind of stuff. But those things are the things that the vine grows on. They're not the vine itself. We think that having meetings is being a Christian. But meetings are just the thing that Christianity grows on and in. And it's a great illustration, isn't it? Are we building a trellis or are we growing a vine? For these people, it's the same thing. This new work is different to what it was before. They're not building a trellis anymore. They're going to grow a vine. And growing vines is hard work compared to building a visible trellis. So Ezra's got his work cut here. What are we going back for, Ezra? Well, we're going to do some vine growing. Oh, it doesn't sound as exciting as building a temple. Can we not build another one? <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to go back for that. So I, I'm speculating here, but all these three reasons, I think, contribute to a much smaller number of people going back the second time. And um, I, you, you can tell me afterwards whether you can um, agree with that or not. The other thing that I want you to notice, in verse 1, Ezra, he's writing his own diary here. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. I don't want you to miss the fact that Ezra is talking here about family heads. And I, I think Ezra, in the work he's doing here, is aiming for the men that doesn't mean if you're a woman now you can switch off because I want you to hear this as well it seems like Ezra's strategy is that if men in the community caught his vision and understood the cost and put their life and back into it their families would inevitably follow that's the so he goes to the family heads what Ezra is doing here is asking the men in the community to lead their families well he's asking the men to be intentional about being involved in spiritual work he wants them to join in and commit to what's going on and if, if, if the men do that then perhaps the families will follow I don't know about statistics. You can make statistics mean anything, can't you? 
but I'm going to, I'll give you some. I I read a stat. This is interesting. If, If a woman in a couple becomes a Christian, it is less likely that her husband will follow. I think it's something like less than 20%. If a man in a couple becomes a Christian, the number is, goes up to 80%. Isn't that significant? Men, they hate being told what to do, don't they? <laughs> they don't want to follow. They want to lead. This, this, is, this is in a way about manliness, isn't it? It's an interesting stat, that. What we often do in churches, though, is the opposite way around. What we do is we say, let's run a club for kids, because if, we, if, the, if, we, if the kids get it, then maybe the families will follow. That's not what Ezra He didn't run a kids' club, hoping that the families would come. Nothing wrong with running a kids' club. We run a great kids' club on a Wednesday, just started in this last term. What Ezra knows is, I need to aim for the men, because if the men are one to this vision, the families will follow. They're not going to go on a journey of 900 miles on their own, are they? And leave their wives and families behind. When you think about those three reasons then, what Ezra's doing really is talking to these family heads and he's wanting them to join in despite the fact that it's not as glamorous as last time. He also wants them to overcome their natural apathy that is based on the slow progress in Jerusalem Ezra's saying to them, yes, the work is hard, but with God's help, we can do this together. What I need is commitment to this great vision. Ezra's saying to them, I need men who can face this challenge and be in this for the long haul. And he's also, when you think of the third thing up there about the work being different and more people-focused, he's asking these men to be willing to get their hands dirty in relationships, isn't he? This work's going to be about people. It's going to be messy and challenging. I need you guys to be examples and leaders, not spectators. You will have influence in your community. You can be a blessing to your families, your community, but it is going to mean you letting people into your lives and you sharing your lives with others. It is going to mean moving towards people, not hiding. It is going to mean asking, what can I do? Instead of, what can I dodge? Maybe we can pause for a moment and think about what this will have looked like in individual homes. Darling, I've been speaking to Ezra. I think I want us to go to Jerusalem. What? Come on, kids, pack your things, we're going on an adventure. Can you, this is reality, isn't it? You read these chapters and it's like, this is reality for many of these families. Can you imagine Ezra going around all these families and saying, are you with me? Can I count on you? And them saying, yes, mate, we're right here, let's do it. This, this is an inspirational story, isn't it? It isn't possible, is it, to get stuff done unless the key influences in a community are committed to the task. And in this community, I think what we're reading here, it shows us that it meant men stepping up to the plate. 
And we might ask, what does that mean? That's interesting history. What does it mean for us here? Well, it can't mean less than that, can it? (laughs) It can't mean less than men stepping up to the plate and taking responsibility. But maybe it means other things as well. Very inspiring. Now, I want us to uh, get to verse 15. That's just covering off the list of names. They're in the Bible for an important reason. And I think uh, they are some of the reasons. Verse 15 to the end, we've got Ezra's memoirs here, his diary. He's writing this chapter in the first person, as we've seen. These are the people who came up with me. And now, in verse 15, he begins, I assembled them. What can we learn from Ezra about leaders who get stuff done? Well, I want to, I want to notice five things, and they all begin with P. That's great, isn't it? I love alliteration. It takes me weeks to work these out, you know. It doesn't really. Friday afternoon. Ezra. <laughs> Ezra, first one. He made plans. That does begin with M, but the word underlined always begins with P. He made plans. Good leaders are realistic and sensible. Ezra has vision. But he is also a realist. He understands the size of the task. And he's thinking carefully, how on earth are we going to achieve this? Getting stuff done doesn't just involve vision, but it involves thinking about how. This is very close to home uh, for me just at this moment in time. And I've been challenged by this. Our our church here has been changing and it's not easy to change. We have some additional leaders here now. We uh, recruited Jai, who uh, has been here for two years, believe it or not. It seemed like an eternity, doesn't it? No, I don't know it hasn't this. It's flown by. And then Richard uh, joined us in September and some of the things we've done have stopped and other new things have started some of us including me at times have found some of those changes difficult but it is interesting sometimes people have said to me even recently do you know Ian I think you're running this church like you run your business and that's a difficult thing isn't it to, to hear It's very hard for me, uh, when I've had a background in business, not to think in those ways, because it's who I am. But I've been reflecting on this a lot. I I wonder whether you could say, Ezra, you're running this journey like a business. This is God's work, isn't it? One of the issues for Christians is that sometimes we can drift into a kind of Christianity that equates planning with being unspiritual. Planning is what people in the world do. But we, we trust God. And we don't make plans. Because God has his plans. So we, can you see the, and, and there's kind of a wedge driven between faith and planning that should never really be there. Just look with me as we approach. The first thing he does in verse 15, he assembles all this group of willing volunteers, all these family heads, 
with their willing wives and enthusiastic children. <laughs> I made that bit up. And he says, we camped at the canal that flows towards a harbour, don't know how you say that, for three days. And when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. Good job they hadn't set off then. What does Ezra do? He is not a knee-jerk leader. He's not hyper. He's not rushing about in a manic way, firing things off. He takes the time to stop and reflect and take stock of what he's got. And at this point, in verse 15, he's not doing, he's thinking. Do you know, so, so often leaders think if they're not doing, they're somehow not, I don't know, doing what they should be doing. There is a time to stop and think and reflect. What are we doing here? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? That's exactly what Ezra does. Three whole days. Can you imagine the people think, when are we going to set off Ezra? We've been here now for three days. I, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm just counting, taking stock of what we've got. And during this period, the light comes on and he realises that although he's got a willing band of volunteers, there's no Levites. There's a deficiency in the group. They're going to need Levites when they get to Jerusalem because the Levites were the tribe who worked in doing all the sacrifices. This group is the group that staffs up the temple. They're crucial. If they get to Jerusalem and they've got no Levites, they'll have to come back and pick up some Levites and then go back again. Where are the Levites? Well, I think everything we've just been saying about how hard this task is, is true for the Levites. And for some reason, the Levites are all dodging. I don't know. I remember watching The Apprentice this year. Are you a fan of The Apprentice? The very first show, all 16 of them, was it? They're all there, boys' team, girls' team. And they go to the boys' team, and someone says, who's going to be the project manager? And all the boys go. And then some poor guy says, look, I didn't really want to be the project manager on the first one, because it's the first one. And all, every one of the other boys dives across the table, congratulations, father. <laughs> and he got it. No, but they were all trying to dodge. No one wanted to take any responsibility. Ezra stops and reflects. And he realises we've got a gap here in our team. And so he summons some of his best men. And he shares his concerns with them. And he tells them to go to a certain town to get Levites and bring them. And he says to them, he explains what he wants them to say. He tells them where to go. And they come back with 38 Levites and 220 other temple staff in addition. Can you imagine that? Ezra must have been made up with that, mustn't he? It's an amazing response. And now their little band is complete, or more complete anyway. Do you know, there's a little clue here to the heart of Ezra. In verse 18, he says, he sends them off, and and Ezra says in his diary here, because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man. He sees that as a kind of, as as a providence of God. 
What I want to say to you is that Ezra is not a kind of tally-ho leader who blows his trumpet and leads them to sit and defeat. He's thoughtful, considerate. He weighs the situation. And in dependence upon God, he is very practical. And dare we say, pragmatic. His planning is not a substitute for his faith, but is actually part of his faith. And we could apply this here, couldn't we? Our church here is small. It does lack resource in many ways. In the past, it certainly lacked leadership. And as we've said, what we've done here is to take stock. No church can grow without leadership being in place. And so Jai's joined us, and then Richard has come and joined us. Both of these guys have embarked on training that is relevant to their work here. Can we say, like Ezra, because the gracious hand of our God was upon us. Capable people have come and joined. What that's meant this year is that new ministries have begun. Our sphere of influence has grown. And that isn't because we've just trusted God or only planned. It's because those two things go hand in hand. Ezra is a realist and careful plan and preparation were part of his nature as a leader And that is not a contradiction with his faith in God. You see that? That's just the first P. Got four more to go. So we better rattle on. Second thing about Ezra is that he called people to pray. And this really proves his heart, doesn't it? In verse 21, There by the canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children and all our possessions. I love the sensitivity here. The way that Ezra is aware of the needs of the whole community. There's women here. There's children here. He has a real heart for everyone in the community. Even though he's a leader here and getting stuff done, he's got a compassion and a care for the whole group. And he calls the whole community to pray. He calls them to humble themselves. There's a recognition there of their frailty and their dependence on God. Maybe there's a recognition there of their sin and and selfishness. He calls them to humble themselves. And he he says he proclaims a fast. It's an interesting thing, fasting. Fasting is going without food. That's why we call the first meal we have breakfast. Break fast. Because we've been fasting overnight. And in the morning we break fast and have breakfast. So, well, some some of us do. Some of us just dash out the house without having... and break, Break the fast at midday instead, which is not very good. Fasting is a very misunderstood subject. And uh, so let's just touch on that briefly. Fasting is not a religious way of earning brownie points with God. Look at me, God. I've gone without food. I I deserve three stamps in my little book for being such a great person. That's not what it's about at all. I I want to say that fasting is about serious desire. It is a way of showing that you mean business. It is going without food for, for a while, maybe missing a meal. And the idea is really 
saying to God, my physical hunger at this point is a reflection of my spiritual hunger for you. I want you. I long for you. I want you to be my all in all. Please come and invade my life. That's really what fasting is about, expressing heart hunger in the same way that we might have stomach hunger. Does that make sense? What Ezra is doing here is calling this community to be hungry for God as a community. He's calling them to put God first, to be serious in seeking God, to be in earnest and to have no distractions. I suppose in that sense fasting is a way of disciplining ourselves to think in a certain way. I want God and his presence and his blessing more even than the food I eat, more even than McDonald's in my case. That's a big deal for me, as you know. Can I throw out a challenge to us here in our church community? Your leaders here too have sought to prioritise times of prayer. And I want to encourage you to pray privately. It is a good thing to make time to pray, to seek God in your life, to go to your room, shut the door, And get alone with God. Show him your hunger. But I want to encourage you too to come and join with us when we pray together corporately. Prayer times in church are not like an optional extra just for the really holy people. All of us need to pray for one another, for the church. It's part of our worship. And the fact that God invites us to pray, what a gift that is for God, the King, to invite us to come and pray to him. Ezra plans, but he also calls the people to pray. And that seems to me like a good biblical balance, does it to you? We're planning and we're praying. And we're praying that God would bless us. This journey, as we said earlier, is going to take four months, 900 miles, There are bandits and robbers. They have women and children in their company. And so they pray, Lord, help us. Lord, protect us. Lord, go before us. Give us safe passage as we return to our hometown. Let me uh, give you another P. As we had a single purpose. That begins with P, purpose. Verse 22 is very interesting. Just look with me. Um, Ezra says... I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers. He doesn't want to ask for a military escort. He actually says in his diary here, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. He's been spending his time bigging up God. He's been spending his time bigging up God and now he's worried that if he goes to the king and asks for help that that'll look like he doesn't believe that God is great enough to keep them safe. 
They had received gifts and donations from the king and officials. Many of the people had added their own gifts to that. They ended up, I worked it out, they ended up with 25 tons of silver and precious stuff to carry. Normally, you would hire security corps and have an armoured car with plate glass and chaps with guns to help you to make this journey. 25 tons. And now Ezra says he's ashamed to ask for protection because he doesn't want to look like he doesn't believe in God. What do you make of that? Does that mean if we ask for help, you know, that's kind of a lack of faith? What's really interesting about this is that in the next book, Nehemiah does ask the king for an escort. And when he gets one, he rejoices that the gracious hand of God has been upon him for the king to grant his request for security. I I think the difference between Ezra and Nehemiah is really striking and it teaches us that the crucial thing here is always a person's motive. On the one hand, Ezra is grappling seriously with a sense of not wanting to make God look weak. On the other hand, Nehemiah is trusting God for his generous provision. Actually, both of their responses grow from their faith. But what they decide to do is very different. And that should remind us, I think, not to be too critical of one another when we come to different conclusions about how faith works out in our lives. It should remind us that we're all different. And if we're struggling together to give honour to God, what that might look like in our lives might be different. And we shouldn't kind of be too quick to say, just because you're doing that, these men were both godly men and it worked out differently in their lives. The challenge though is to ask, what is our purpose in life, isn't it? What was Ezra's purpose? Are we concerned to live in a way that reflects our faith in God? Are we bothered what other people think of our God? It made me smile that comment when I wrote it. Because culturally, we generally fall for the idea that what we do is no one else's business, don't we? It's my life. No one can tell me what to do. What I do is nobody else's business. But actually, that's not such a great attitude for a Christian. Because other people are watching to see whether your faith is real, genuine. And Ezra's concerned here that the king doesn't misjudge God based on his life. He's not worried what the king thinks of him. He's worried that the king will come to a wrong conclusion about God. There's a lovely verse in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians where Paul describes himself (coughs) as an ambassador for Christ. Imagine that. An ambassador. You know what an ambassador is. Like The ambassador goes to a foreign country uh, and you know we have like British ambassadors who live in all sorts of places all around the world. They're, they're a citizen of Britain, but they go and live in a foreign country to represent that country to those people. Paul says, I'm an ambassador for Christ. What he's saying is, I'm a citizen of heaven, and I'm living in a foreign country, this world, and every, everything that I do 
says something about the God and the Saviour that I represent. When people look at my life, they will draw conclusions about my God. So the challenge for us here, from Ezra, is are, are you living, am I living in a way that as far as we can, brings honour to the God that we claim to love and serve and trust? What would other people say about God if they studied your life and my life? Would they say, I don't know, you obviously don't really believe because it doesn't make any difference. Well, whether Ezra was right or not to refuse an escort, it was his motive that counted. And his aim was not to make God look weak or small. His greatest purpose, his single purpose, was to bring glory to his God in the face of the king. I wonder whether our lives reflect that. Fourthly, uh, Ezra organised with prudence. It's a great Scottish word, that, isn't it? I'm sure a Scotsman invented that word, prudent. He organised with prudence. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 24 to 30 is all about treasure. And uh, you can imagine this. They're camping there by the canal and they've had their little time of reflection and they've realised there's no Levites and now they've got some. And then they realise they've got all this treasure. Now, there are two dangers here. One is, the obvious one is that robbers will ambush them and nick all their stuff. But the other less obvious one is that maybe people in their own group will do a little bit of petty pilfering. And when they get to the other side, there won't quite be as much treasure as there was when they started. So Ezra calls out some of his guys and says, listen, this stuff is not ours. It's God's. People have given their possessions here and this isn't our stuff this stuff is holy and set apart for God to use. So what I'm going to do with you now, you come with me with your notebooks and we're going to weigh it all out here. And your job then is to guard this treasure and when we get to Jerusalem, we're going to weigh it all out again. And we'll check whether what we had at the start is what we still have at the end. Isn't that prudent? Now imagine you're in this team and you're thinking, hang on a minute Ezra, do you not trust me? I'm not going to nick any of this stuff, you don't need to measure it. And there's an attitude there, isn't there? If you're not going to nick any of it, you've got nothing to worry about, have you? But if you do measure it, there's a protection there, isn't there, for the whole community. What, what Ezra's doing here is he's doing everything we, we say, don't we? He's doing it all above board. And if you're living a, an honourable life, you have nothing to fear, do you, by doing things above board? Sensible practice. Sometimes we, we don't like scrutiny, do we? I don't want anyone looking over my shoulder checking what I'm doing. Can you imagine these guys going on strike? We're not having that, Ezra. If you want to measure this stuff out, that means you don't trust us. We're down in tools, mate. We don't want to come on this journey. If you're, I'm sick of this, Ezra. He doesn't trust us. You can, you, they, they, all those attitudes, don't they, come to mind? But if they're honourable, they have nothing to worry about. 
Ezra organised things in a prudent way. He's getting stuff done, isn't he? But not in a corner. He's not a second-hand car salesman. He's not doing things in a shady, half-baked way. He wants to do things in a proper manner. And how important that is for Christian believers, especially to do things in an honourable, clear and above-board way. And it's not wrong for us to scrutinise sometimes what we're doing. And just because we scrutinise things doesn't mean that we don't trust one another. It just means that we want to show that we're doing things in a way that is above board. How many is that for? And the last one. Uh, he praised God. Look at verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month we set out from the Havar Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. Isn't it great how he acknowledges with thankfulness God's safekeeping. He's aware that it's God who's done it. God has led them, protected them, provided for them and brought them safely home. He's very quick, isn't he? To record his thankfulness and acknowledge God's kindness and grace. I wonder in our lives, are we as quick? If you you were writing a diary, like Ezra's here, how quick would I be? How quick would we be to acknowledge in this way the hand of our God was on us. We planned and we prayed, but it was really God that accomplished this task. He, he's the one who deserves all the credit. Well, I think Ezra is a really great guy. What a great model of a godly leader he is. And what a great example of a man who really manned up Despite his young age, he was a realist, he was humble, he was prayerfully dependent on God, he had an eye for God's honour and glory rather than his own, he was organised, he got stuff done in a good way, and then in the end he was thankful to God for God's keeping power. Even though the work was hard, he inspired others to man up and join in. And I think there's a great challenge for us here. God is the sovereign Lord He does work out his plans in history. But what's clear here is that God uses people. God works in people's hearts. Things don't just happen by magic. Our church here, it doesn't happen by magic. God's work in his world requires commitment, focus, energy and determination. So my question, I suppose, as we just close now is, will we too, here, even in Rotherham, in our little corner of God's vineyard, will we too get stuff done, as Ezra did, that will bring glory to God's great name? Amen.